Hello, I'm your host, Sarah Bartley. You're tuned into another episode of Funding is the Matter. Funding is the Matter is a podcast that talks about the surplus of issues caused by the racial wealth gap. The podcast that breaks down the message to sustain funding for education and science topics that impact the Black community. This podcast proves to define that Black Lives Matter is a scientific and social problem. I will be introducing Dr. Kalinda C. Smith. Dr. Kalinda C. Smith earned a PhD and an MS in social psychology from Howard University and a BA in psychology and English from the Truman State University. She is a social psychologist with an expertise in STEM education and identified development research focusing on BIPOC students. Dr. Smith is currently a co-PI, our investigator on several interdisciplinary NSF-funded STEM education research projects. And today she's going to be talking about the NSF projects that she has and also some of the papers that she's published. On some of your papers, what you've talked about is on microaggressions. Could you further explain on what is a microaggression and how can this impact the science identity? Sure. So microaggressions are very subtle statements that are insulting or devaluing a person based on one of their social identities. So this could be race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation. And so these statements basically are insults that are very hard to address because they are so subtle. And so a really good example that we have from more recent history is the idea that people said President Barack Obama was very eloquent. So this is suggestive of that being something unusual for an African-American man. Or even if we're talking about this idea that things are equal for all people now, so people should stop complaining, people should stop asking for more. And so we know, especially more recently, that we're seeing a lot of inequality based on these social categories. So those statements devalue the experiences of the targeted person. And when we talk about how that might impact science identity. So when we're talking about women, when we're talking about people of color, we're not seeing them very often in science disciplines. And part of that comes from a lot of the negative stereotypes about those groups and their science acumen. We tend to believe, we tend to sort of default on the stereotype that a scientist is a white man in a lab coat. Studies have been done that show when children were asked to draw a scientist, that's what they drew. This idea that women, that people of a color, both male and female, are not found in these areas very often. We don't see the representation in the workforce. We don't see the representation in academia. And we don't see the representation in the majors. And so not having people who look like you doing what you want to do is already a barrier, but then having a lot of negative stereotypes about people like you in that domain is another barrier. So then when peers, when faculty use microaggressions based on those negative stereotypes towards these particular groups, then that can reinforce this idea that they don't belong there. And it can also increase ostracism. And so we see a lot of people leaving the major because, or the majors because of that. And so that's one way that microaggressions can impact science identity. So seeing yourself as a scientist is something harder to do if it is sort of a well-known idea that people like you aren't scientists. And so when that's reinforced by microaggressions, we see people leave the majors or the field even. What are some of like the findings that you have discovered from some of your work? 
one particular study that really focuses on microaggressions um, targeting women and people of color was done at a predominantly white institution as well as historically black institutional university rather. And both were land grant institutions with highly ranked engineering programs. So specifically focusing on these students as engineering undergraduates, we wanted to understand if there were microaggressions used to target them, what microaggressions were used and how they cope with these microaggressions. And so what we found is that sort of in Intuitively, there were more microaggressions at the PWI, but that doesn't mean there weren't any microaggressions at the HBCU. And so what we saw at the PWI was that women, as well as people of color, were being targeted with these microaggressions more often. The microaggressions were coming from students more than they were coming from faculty. So ideas that are statements like, you're not really Black because you don't talk ghetto, for instance, was a microaggression that was used for Latinx individuals, a lot of microaggressions targeting whether or not they belonged in the United States, whether or not they belonged on a particular campus, whether or not they belonged in the engineering major were ones we saw very often. Microaggressions towards women were about them not being able to do particular types of tasks, especially those that included using tools or coding, even among Asian American students, uh, while there was the model minority stereotype used to target them often. So this means they heard things like, well, of course you can do math, you're Asian, or how could you get a score lower than me, you're Asian. We still saw that the women were treated like they weren't as effective as at engineering as the men, even though they were also targeted with this model minority stereotype. Now that we've come together to do this group project, we're going to turn to the young lady and say, hey, make this pretty. You're a girl. So we saw not only microaggressions that targeted someone's status as a woman or someone's status as a person of color, but also we saw that there was intersectionality in that the quantity of microaggressions was much higher if someone had more than one social identity, which is somewhat intuitive. But what was particularly interesting is that we saw intersectionality related to quality much more often when it came to men of color at the PWI. And so men of color were targeted with stereotypes about criminality more than any other group. And so men of color were targeted with hostility more than women of color were. Men of color experienced being called racial slurs more often. What was interesting, there were, at the time the data was collected, there were a lot of negative beliefs about Latinx uh, or Latino men based on a lot of the negative stereotypes sort of moved by the Trump administration as there was a lot of rhetoric about building the wall at the Mexican border. But at the same time, so while we saw a lot of, are you supposed to be here? What are you doing here? What is your immigration status? Darker skin. Latino men were more likely to hear the racial slur, the N-word that is usually targeted towards African-Americans. And so that was a really important finding in that microaggressions are about your perceived social identities as much as they are about your actual social identities. 
So just having dark skin made these young men targets of that particular racial slur, even if they didn't necessarily identify as Black or African-American or Afro-Latino. And so we saw just a lot more microaggressions being used, which is intuitive when we think about engineering being a predominantly white male space, especially at a PWI. What we saw at the HBCU was that there were more microaggressions targeting women, focusing more on traditional stereotypes about women um, subscribing to feminine norms and not being as good as science or as smart as it relates to science. We saw that at the PWI as well, but that is primarily what we saw at the HBCU. But what was also interesting about what we saw at the HBCU was that a lot of women of color who were not African-American spoke about a lot of the opportunities they were receiving as women. Overall, we saw that there was the use of microaggressions, racial microaggressions, gendered microaggressions, what you might call gendered racial microaggressions. We saw those more at the PWI. We saw those more coming from students, less coming from faculty. But what was also interesting is that while we saw higher levels of microaggression targeting women at the HBCU, we also saw microaggressions more likely to be targeting women when they came from faculty. So the idea of advising a young lady to go into sales instead of engineering because her looks would give, well, engineering, but sales related to engineering because her looks would get her further. Um, that was one comment at the HBCU. At the PWI, there was also sort of ignoring the female students more often, discouraging them from going into engineering at all, not offering any kind of career advice or tips to young women like they could to young men or they did to young men. And so coming from faculty, it wasn't often an attack that you would sort of see parallel to traditional sexism as much as it was sort of ignoring. So micro-invalidations, ignoring the experiences of women or excluding women. How does the student's perception also impact their performance? And can you go into self-efficacy and what does that mean? And how does that relate to your work that you've done? So in this particular study, when we talk about self-efficacy, we're talking about students' belief that they can do engineering and they can be engineers. What we found was that self-efficacy was a bigger issue related to microaggressions for Latinx students and women. So that believing that you belong here was more difficult for those students. And I think that that's sort of intuitive in that it comes with things like immigration status, but also possibly growing up in a different culture, growing up in a different country. And so feeling like once they got here, they may have been missing some tools or missing some preparation or just missing uh, idioms and things that their classmates could discuss and understand that they didn't understand because they didn't grow up here. So then when you add these experiences, not only of microaggressions that might be a little more obvious, like telling a Mexican student, oh, you're in construction engineering because you're Mexican. So that's obviously more surface level offensive, but also just not seeing a lot of representation of Latinx folks in the discipline. 
So not seeing a lot of representation among the faculty and the history that they were being taught around engineering. So missing those things really sort of impacted self-esteem and self-efficacy and made students wonder if they belonged and if they should be there. We definitely saw that more often among Latinx students. We also, in thinking about what was happening with Latinx students, definitely more recognition of microaggressions targeting women in those populations as well. And so it may be that their particular experiences as young men being excluded because they were Latinx really made them more sensitive to and in tune to the microaggressions that were particularly targeting women as well. Ultimately, what we learned from the students were that they weren't necessarily going to leave the major because of their experiences. They still, at the time that we talked to them, were interested in pressing forward. We tended to see that resilience. They were able to find support across students of color, across women in student organizations. And so some of those coping mechanisms came in having student organizations and at the HBCU, especially with the Latinx students, the student organizations didn't have to focus on Latinx culture. It could just be African-American student organizations, but something that provided a support network of peers who were there to help each other sort of lift each other up and keep each other moving forward. One of the negative coping skills we saw was sort of this optimism where they ignored what was going on. And the reason that that can be problematic is because that can be a burden on mental health. So not really confronting how it might be hurtful, how it might be upsetting that people are excluding you or targeting you in this way. And so when we talk about what needs to be done to address some of these issues, the, the training that you might provide to students across the board on inclusion, training around uh, better understandings of history, better understanding of how issues related to social justice can also be a part of engineering. You have that training to sort of stop the whitewashing of certain things so we can see how the, in, the inclusion of women and people of color is not about letting people in. It's about acknowledging people who've always been there. So sort of giving them their flowers. But you also want to address how not addressing these things can, like I said, be a burden on mental health. So when you talk about training that can help combat this, that training also has to be towards the individual as a target. How do you positively deal with what's happening to you? How do you cope in a way that's healthy? And so overall, we did see, like I said, some good coping mechanisms as it pertained to finding social networks, but also some negative coping mechanisms when it pertained to repression of emotions and ignoring negative experiences. One of the things that would possibly be maybe another coping mechanism is actually talking to professors. But one of the things is that there are few professors at PWIs and at HBCUs that are of the minority status. In your articles, you talked about like faculty exchange. Could you talk about maybe some of like the microaggressions that HBCUs, professors at HBCU could face at faculty exchange, and maybe some of the microaggressions that serve like minority students as they're trying to become faculty members? 
the microaggressions would be very similar and sort of tapping into implicit bias that relies on negative stereotypes. So negative stereotypes about women doing well in science, negative stereotypes about people of color doing well in science. But at the same time, I wouldn't say that the microaggressions are the problem as much as the system is the problem. So if we have these systemic differences regarding how HBCUs are funded, how research targeting people of color is funded, then what you're going to have is when, for instance, when I'm working with people at other universities, I'm, I don't have the necessarily the research infrastructure that bigger PWIs may have. I even, in some of the collaborative research that we do, I suspect that if I were to try to do some of that research on my own, it may not get the same funding as it does when I'm collaborating with faculty from a PWI or faculty who identify as white. And so that part, I think, is bigger. And there tends to also be this belief that if you're educated at an HBCU, you're just you don't have the same level of education that you would get from a PWI. And so we have faculty at HBCUs who are not only brilliant, but also really dedicated. And so we're fighting through a lot of these barriers to still get this research done if we're lacking sort of the acknowledgement of that, that we are doing this research and we're doing this research against some steep odds, that could go a long way. And so I just think when you, going back to your original question about faculty exchange and faculty, Africa, especially African-American faculty working with white faculty or faculty at PWIs is more not realizing the disparity and resources, the disparity in funding, and even how that disparity can truly be based on systemic racism. We're really struggling with acknowledging systemic racism and trying to push away from systemic racism impacting people on the ground. And it makes people uncomfortable. It makes people not or maybe there's a, a disconnect there because I, I it makes me uncomfortable to think someone is not as far as me because I have particular privilege. And so if I don't want to acknowledge that privilege, then maybe I don't want to interact with those people. And so in that way, I wouldn't say that it's an individual level of racism between colleagues, but just a lot that's perpetuated through the system that needs to be broken down. And so because you have all of that, then you're gonna see how that would impact students as well. If I can't get the funding that another researcher or another institution can get, then it's hard for me to provide my students with stipends. It's hard for me to provide my research participants with monetary incentives. And so when you're not able to basically do the things that you need to do because of that system, then you're also not able to provide students with what they need to go farther as well. And so a lot of the the great news on the other side of that is that there are a lot of training programs. So one of the programs that I work with is PRIM, which focuses on training women and students of color in material science research. And so specifically targeting those students, but also trying to match those students with faculty of color and faculty who are women. And so we know that seeing people like us do what we do 
or do what we would like to do, then helps to motivate us to know that we can do it as well. And so that's a part of this training, not only to really give students hands-on research experience that pays the way to graduate school and beyond, but also to show them that people who look like them are able to do what they would like to do. And so in essence, engineers and scientists are not just white men in lab coats. So it's great that you have been able to get partnerships with NSF. So faculty at HBCUs are talking about the challenges to develop partnerships with NSF. And so some of the challenges are stated because NSF is unaware of who these HBCU professors are. So would you state that this is also another barrier because HBC professors do not have the salaries to go to these conferences? Are there any other microaggressions that you have seen throughout your process of trying to secure funding throughout NSF? I wouldn't call that microaggressions. You mentioned a couple of things that I think is important to acknowledge. Because of the lack of funding that HBCUs might get from organizations, because a lot of money comes from partnering with organizations or corporations, people in industry, a lot of money comes from alumni uh, giving back. And then a lot of money comes from different government organizations as well. And so when HBCUs don't get that funding, then faculty do get lower salaries. And so what that means is that it's harder to do. We're basically expected to do the same work. All faculty across all universities, depending on if it's a research university, if it's a teaching university, et cetera, Everybody does the same work, but everybody gets paid something different. And so it can be very hard if you're on the the bottom tier of getting paid to then also put in the same amount of hours and the same amount of work as someone who's maybe on the top tier of getting paid. And then when it comes to the research, our compensation is based on our base salary. So you can be doing just as much work as the next person, but not be getting the same amount of salary. And so that can be a hindrance, but it also can be a bit degrading. And then added to that, HBCUs, that lack of funding at a higher level also tends to mean less faculty. And so for the faculty that are there, then we have higher teaching loads. And so when I kind of talked about earlier partnerships with faculty at PWIs, they're thinking, okay, we're doing this research. They're teaching maybe two classes, three classes a year. And at some HBCUs, we're teaching eight classes a year. Uh, They may, if they're a research intensive institution, they're likely to have graduate students who are their assistants at HBCUs who are less likely to have graduate programs where we can have graduate assistants. And so basically the workload gets higher, the pay gets lower. And so those can be really big barriers. There's also even the training to turn out those grant applications that really get that money can also be lacking. And so there are very few HBCUs that are research intensive HBCUs. So there are partnerships for those more research intensive HBCUs to partner with those who are less to help with the understanding of the trainings and the different things you need to do to get that research funding. The resources, the training, the salaries, I think those are bigger barriers. 
And so we talk a lot, I said this earlier about how we envision who a scientist is, but the same comes with representation at institutions like NSF. And NSF is definitely a diverse institution, but we still need more people of color. We still need need more women in the rooms when it comes to reviewing grant applications, when it comes to making decisions about what areas are the areas that are of importance to be funded or the areas of interest to be funded. And so in that way, we really need to see a lot of people of color a lot of scientists who are doing the research also be in the rooms when it comes to the policy or the decisions around where the money is going. Do you have any final thoughts about how do microaggressions impact professors' interactions with NSF and other federal agencies? I would say the thing that needs to happen is a bigger focus on the issues that impact people across the board, but especially women and people of color. And we definitely see lots of movement in that in those areas, but that movement doesn't need to exist like a fad. So when we talk about health disparities, when we talk about workforce disparities between men and women and people of color and white people, these things are issues that should not be sound bites should not be a focus to make people feel better, but a focus because when you start to eradicate these issues, you strengthen the society. So if we can do things like increase health and decrease crime, we can thrive. We can thrive as a society. A lot of people in our society are focused on money. So we're a capitalist country. The economy is very important. Well, when you do things like increase equity, increase health, decrease crime, you increase the amount of money that comes in. You increase the amount of money that people spend. And so those kinds of things need to be recognized. And so these topics are important for sort of the good of the people, but also the good of the greedy corporations as well. And so I think just understanding that these issues are always important and always will be important across domains for so many reasons will then sort of lessen the disparities we get in who is getting funding and how far that funding can go. So thank you, Dr. Smith, for coming on the podcast. And to follow the podcast on social media, follow us on IG at at funding underscore is underscore the underscore matter. Also at Twitter at funds underscore do underscore matter. To subscribe to this podcast, you can find it on Spotify, Apple, or other podcast platforms. This is a bi-weekly podcast, and I'll see you in two weeks.